So chapter 14, verse 1. Now one Sabbath, when Jesus went to dine at the house of a leader of the Pharisees, they were watching closely. Once again, we're scorekeeping. We're watching you, recording everything and scorekeeping it, and we're going to tally it up at the end and decide whether you should be killed or not. There, right in front of him, was a man suffering from dropsy. Dropsy is basically swollen limbs from accumulation of bodily fluids. And there can be a number of things that it causes in this man. And Luke's not interested in that. But basically he has swollen limbs and swollen joints, which would make walking difficult and make it painful. So Jesus asked the experts in the religious law and the Pharisees, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? Remember, they keep failing this test. So we're going to do another retake. And we're going to do another retake. And we're going to do another retake. But they remained silent. Now they're like, I'm not answering these questions anymore. They're not remaining silent because they're like, man, he really knows more than us. They might be thinking a little bit of that. Or we're really getting owned. And wow, I might actually be willing to concede that he's right and come to his side. It's more like, I really don't think he's right. And I know he's owning us publicly, but I'm going to keep my mouth shut because we're looking bad in front of everybody else. And it's not just about killing Jesus. It's also maintaining our followers, our sponsorships, our clicks, our subscribers. Okay, we want to keep that. There's lots of money to be made in keeping all that. And so at this point, there's a Jesus owning them, but it's not an admittance that, wow, he knows more than us. It's a, I hate him for doing this to us. So Jesus took a hold of the man and healed him and sent him on his way. And then he said to them, Which of you, if you have a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on the Sabbath, will not immediately pull him out? But they could not reply to this. He keeps going to the heart. He keeps going to the heart of their hypocrisy. Why is one life more important than another life? Then when Jesus noticed how the guests chose the places of honor, he told them a parable and he said to them, When you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor, because a person more distinguished than you may have, invited, may have been invited by your hosts. So the hosts who invited both of you will come and say to you, Give this man your place. Then ashamed, you will begin to move to the least important place. But when you are invited, go and take the least important places, so that when your host approaches, he will say to you, Friend, move up here to a better place. Then you will be honored in the presence of all those who share the meal with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Now, the Pharisees are known for taking the best seats. They're, they're known for um, finding the best things first. This is not a comment on my home church that I grew up in as a whole. This is one person. But I remember there was this one person who would sit in the same pew, in the same spot in the pew, week after week after week after week. And one day this guest, this new person came into the church and sat there. And that person came to them and literally said, you're sitting in my seat. You need to move. This is my seat. And that person never came back again. Okay, even though people apologize, saw this, and apologize, I don't know where they were in their faith, um, but they never saw them again. And that's the idea of the Pharisees. 
Okay, they will take the best, and they believe that it's for them and them alone, and it's all about honor and prestige. And it is because I deserve this. I'm more obedient and more godly than you are. That's why I have all this. Therefore, I deserve to have even more blessings of God. And if you deserve these blessings, you would have a better life than you do now. So I'm only acting within the character of God, right? And Jesus says, no, 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 no. This is about serving people. Compassion. Service. Self-sacrifice. Deny your cross. Deny yourself and pick up your cross. You are to offer up what is yours to them. You are to offer up the best to other people. When there are people who have very little, offer your best. You have so much compared to them. And you can afford to not have this thing for this moment for someone who has so very little. Because the last thing you want is for the host to come in and say, this isn't yours. I reserve this for other people. You Pharisees, these are not your seats. These are the Gentiles. These are the lame. These are the sick seats. But if you humble yourself and offer the best to them, then you're truly serving and being compassionate to others, and then the hosts will honor you. Now remember, this isn't just role reversal for the sake of role reversal. Like if a poor person is sitting in the great seat, then God's like, well, he's not in the best seat, so I have to take him down a notch. But then he puts the good person, the wealthy person in that seat. He's like, well, now he's sitting in the seat. Now I have to take him down a notch. This is not about role reversal for the sake of role reversal. This is about heart attitude. The host is putting people in these seats because he's honoring them. Therefore, they have the right to be there because he placed them there because they're humble. But those who have humbled themselves and allowed the other people to sit in those seats, they've humbled themselves, which pleases the host, which means that he will offer them great blessings as well. The idea is if you humble yourself and honor other people and serve them, then God will bless you. He'll bless you. And as we're going to see later, this doesn't mean physical blessings, though it could, but it means primarily spiritual and emotional and mental kind of blessings, contentment, satisfaction, hope, peace, and joy. This is hard. We already talked about this. Because even if you're good at doing this, in the back of your mind, you're still like, oh, gosh, I was hoping they wouldn't take the biggest piece of the pie. Okay? Or I wanted those seats. Like, dang, I remember like we were trying to reserve these. We got online, first thing. Like the day that the minute like national state parks or state parks were opening up for camping sites. And we had these sites picked out because we have a tent and everybody's got RVs and we need shade. They don't because they're an RV and they got all these best sites before we could do it, even though we were like one minute late to doing it. And it was hard to not think like, dang it, you're the people with RVs who have money to buy those RVs and you can provide your own shade and you've got awnings and everything. And we just have a tent and three kids like... I was like, oh, okay, wait a minute. <laughs> so we still do this. Like, even if we're like, oh, yeah, you can go ahead. In our minds, we're still, we had this desire that I need these things. I need these things, and I deserve these things. And so Christ is not just talking about physical actions. He's also talking about heart attitudes. He's talking about heart, heart attitudes. And that's where it stops. Like, the Ten Commandments is kind of easy if you just brush over them really quickly. But then when you dive in and realize what they're really going into, you're like, oh. I always remember, like, 
So I take a whole, we have block periods at school. And I take a whole block period, which is 70 minutes, and I go through the Ten Commandments. And by the end of the kids are just like, oh my gosh, I feel like I'm the worst person in the entire <laughs> world. And I'm like, good, that's the whole point. Because the whole point is to realize that you are that so that you'll to cling to Christ all the more and realize your only hope is found in him. When you really dive into these things, you realize they're going for the heart and the mind and the heart attitudes and not just surface, well, I let people, I hold the door open for people. But how do you feel about it on the inside? That's where you realize, I need Christ. I so need Christ. Because there's so much transformation that has to be done. Verse 12. He said also to the man who had invited him, When you host a dinner or a banquet, don't invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors so you can be invited by them in return to get repaid. But when you host an elaborate meal, invite the poor the crippled, the lame, and the blind, then you will be blessed because they cannot repay you for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Don't invite the people who can repay you. Remember, this is a debt society. It's a keeping score society. So like you invite somebody to a banquet and you're really wealthy and they're like, well, I have to be seen there. I have to be a part of it or I'll lose social points if I don't show up. And then you get invited, but then now you owe that person and you have to invite them because that will diminish your social points. And your social points contribute to your status and your ranking the way that people view you and business deals and whether you're first on the line for buying that yacht, okay, all those kind of things. And, and they, they very much think this way. So they only invite their friends and family, which are typically going to be of the same social status as them. Because it's that idea of um, the debt, like when like you've seen war movies from Vietnam and they're like, they come back from Vietnam and they're, they're now running businesses and stuff and they're like, they're, they're, one guy's really in trouble. You can see this in like the first lethal weapon. And he's like, well, this guy owes me. And they go to him and he's like, I saved your life. I'm calling in my chip, my debt. And he's like, okay, we're, we're even after this, right? And it's like, what kind of friendship is that? Like, I'm only going, you, like, you saved my life, and, and we were in the foxhole together, and we almost died together, and we were totally dependent upon each other, and we came very close to each other, and we were, we were and, and, but now, I'm only helping you because you saved my life, but after this, we're done. Like, what the heck? That always, that always drives me nuts all the time when people talk like that. But that's, that's the way that wealthy, not, I'm not saying all wealthy people, but the, the wealthy mentality, the worldly wealthy mentality thing and we can even think that sometimes too like i've been there for some there are so many times they owe me now and christ is like no 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 when you have these things invite the poor invite the people who can offer you nothing invite the people that it may not make you look good among other people like you're inviting those people you might have to clean your house what if they rob you those are legitimate things. Don't be dumb, right? Don't be dumb, okay? You have to take cautions. You shouldn't allow people just to walk over you. But there's a fine line. Well, I'm not letting people walk over me, and then you don't help anybody. Versus, like, letting people walk over you all the time, and then you don't help anybody because you're not really helping them because you have no boundaries. And so there's a tension there. Because Jesus would be wise as serpents and gentle as doves. But here's the thing. These Pharisees, they do help the poor. 
It's a mistake to think that they don't. It's often you think, well, they're not helping anybody, are they? They do help the poor. Because they help the poor in giving money and almsgiving. And they'll send their servants out to take care of them. When they, they've eaten all their food and they're like, wow, we have all these leftovers. Here, servants, take it out to the poor. They have no idea what the poor even look like. But they're taking care of it because here's the thing. The law requires them to take care of the poor and give alms. And so they're like, there I am. I'm doing my almsgiving. And then everybody will see the food coming out of my house and going to them. They'll be like, oh, they're so great. They're so loving and compassionate. And so they do. But to be socially seen with the poor, that's a different thing. It's one thing to write a check or support a ministry or a charity. It's another thing to mingle and do life with those people. Social status is everything. Giving money to them increases social status. Not hanging out with them increases social status. And this is what Jesus is talking about. It's not just enough. Now, I'm not trying to make you feel guilty for writing checks and giving to ministries and donations. That's not the point. The point is, if that's all it is, and you're never opening your life to people, that's not what Christ meant by helping people. He's calling them to do this, to take care of them. He's going to continue this idea in chapter 14, verse 15. When one of those at the meal, when Jesus heard this, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will feast in the kingdom of God. But Jesus said to him, A man. So he's like, Aren't we all blessed? We're with you, Jesus, and we have banquets, and we invited you, and we're the prestigious. I completely misunderstood and not listened to anything you've just said. We're all blessed because we're wealthy, and we can afford to do banquets, and you're here with us, right? And Jesus says, no, 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 no. Let's try another parable. But Jesus said to them, A man once gave a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his slave to tell those who had been invited, Come, because everyone is now ready. But one after another, they all began to make excuses. The first said to them, I have bought a field, and I must go out and see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I just got married, and I cannot come. So the slave came back and reported this to his master. Then the master of the household was furious. And he said to the slave, Go out quickly to the streets and the alleys of the city, and bring in the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. And then the slave said, Sir, what you have instructed has been done, and there is still room. So the master said to his slave, Go out to the highways and the country roads, and urge the people to come in, so that my house will be filled. For I tell you, not one of those individuals who were invited will taste my banquet. The master has a banquet. And he invites all the people that you would expect to be invited. The Pharisees, the religious leaders, the wealthy, and that kind of stuff. But they refuse. These excuses are dumb. Hey, you want to go on a date? I can't. I'm washing my hair. What about the next weekend? I'm washing my hair that weekend too. What about the next week? I'm washing my hair that weekend too. Okay? You realize at a point that this is a really dumb excuse. Like how long does it take you to really wash your hair? But you're like, wait a minute. These seem a little bit better, right? They're not, they're saying sing land. No, no, no. The first two cases, no one purchased anything without first viewing the product. Okay, he says, I just bought some land. Let me go see it first. Who buys things without viewing it? Now you're like, well, I've bought some things. Yeah, but not land, not property. You don't go out, you have no, and remember you're like, well, it's just land, right? I'm just going to build a house. No, no, no. In the ancient world, remember, you're trying to plant vineyards and trees and grow crops. 
And so land, the what the soils, that's incredibly important. It's just like, I don't really care what land it is. I can build anything on anything. What was the next one? I just got married and I cannot come. Really? Bring your wife. Like, it's not like, they're not on their honeymoon. Because one, that didn't really exist at this time period. And two, if you're on your honeymoon, you're not responding to invitations. Weddings would have been planned well in advance and they would have known all this and they would have been able to line everything up and that kind of stuff. The whole point of their excuses is that they're intentionally trying to defame and dishonor and publicly humiliate the guest. What they're saying is we don't, or sorry, the host, we don't like you. And we are all getting together to socially defame you. And when nobody shows up to your party, you're going to be the laughing stock of the neighborhood. And your social status is going to plummet into unrecoverable deficits. And you're going to be ruined. This is what the Pharisees are trying to do to Jesus. And therefore, this is what they're trying to do to Yahweh. They're trying to humiliate him and publicly own him and cast him out so that they will destroy his social status among all the people so completely that Jesus will never be able to recover from it. And he will never have any more words to say or have any voice in the community anymore. And so Jesus says, fine. You think you're the only people that I can invite to the wedding? Or the banquet? I I'm going to go to the people that you've already defamed. The people that you've already outcast. You want to defame me? And you want to ruin me socially? Fine. I will allow it to happen in your eyes. But then I will go out to all the other people that you've ruined and defamed socially and brought down. And we will create a whole new society. A society that is far bigger than yours because the amount of people that you've put down is greater than 90% of the people. And the amount of you that have the power are the 1%. And we'll build a community, and because I'm a great, powerful man, I will lift them all up, and they will become the new community. And they will become far greater than your community. And not only that, there's still room. Because I'm so wealthy and so powerful as God, that even when I invite the greater than the 90% of the people that exist in Israel that you've rejected, there's still tons of room in my banquet table. And now I'm going to go out to the Gentiles and the foreign nations that you've condemned and judged and outcast as well. And I'm going to bring them in. And eventually you will truly be the minority. I'm going to build my kingdom of God like that. And this is what God is saying. I tell you, one of these individuals were invited. Not one of them will come to the banquet. This is who the banquet's for. And this makes me think of Deuteronomy. And of Jeremiah. In Deuteronomy, Moses makes it very clear that you, you had nothing. You were slaves. Remember the foreigners and go to them and invite them into the nation of Israel because you too were a foreigner who had nothing. Invite the poor because you too were once poor and bring them in. I wanted you to go out and I want you to take care of these because you too were once that way. I am the one who made you into a great nation. And then Ezekiel 16, God basically says, I found you, Israel, as an aborted baby wallowing in your own blood. And I took you in and I cleaned you up and I raised you as you were my only child. Nobody wanted you. I made you great. I can do the same thing 
with anybody. What you reject Israel, I can do the same thing with what you've rejected and make them great. And we need to think that way. That what we see as down and out and weak and poor and rejected is exactly what God is saying, I can make them into anything because I did the same thing with you. Well, what it means of who you should be taking care of, who you should be invested in. Now remember, this isn't just the physically poor either. This is the emotionally poor. This is the socially poor. If you look around society, there's lots of people like this. In the ancient world, they had a eye-for-an-eye kind of a mentality. And even though they become more civilized and they may be less likely to like attack them physically, there are more socially acceptable ways of getting revenge. And if they're trying to destroy the host of the banquet through social status points, then if he truly is powerful, he would be expected and would most likely do reprisal to get revenge on them, to ruin them in some kind of way. And what's interesting is that this host doesn't do this. He doesn't get reprisal. He doesn't try to ruin them socially too. He just merely walks away and refuses to participate with them anymore. And I think this is important to understand is that when God is saying, look, I can take these people that you've rejected, the poor and the foreigners, and and I will build them into a great nation. But he's not saying, I'm going to go and destroy you and ruin you and humiliate you and all that kind of stuff and then go turn to these people. He's saying, I'm just walking away from you. You can keep everything that you've had and you've invested in. You can keep your social status and rankings if you want. I don't care about any of that. I'm removing myself completely from your system. And this is what you see with Jesus a lot. There's no reprisal. There's no trying to destroy their social status. There's no outcasting them. Mostly it's just a walking away. He refuses to play the game. He refuses to play the party the way that they want to. And he merely moves on and he finds new friends. And this is an incredible mark of maturity. And, and even with our own friends, my students at school, and even with my girls, I tell them, like, there's no reason for revenge. There's no reason to, like, if they're saying bad things about you and gossiping about it, there's no reason to return it back, okay? Because I've actually heard parents say, well, then just tell them that they're jerks back or tell them that I don't, or tell them, or do this. I've heard parents say this, like, or just tell everybody else what they're like. That's reprisal. Just walk away and find the people that are not like that. There are so many kids. Now, this is hard because they're struggling with that. But I need to feel accepted. And I need to be included. But they get it after a while. Because after a while, we try very hard to emphasize body boundaries with them. And if you emphasize that enough, eventually they'll only put up with so much. Okay? And if you emphasize not only are they worthy of this love, but also emphasize nobody has any right to do this to you, then eventually they won't put up with that anymore. And they, they won't get abused for a while before they finally, the, the, the need to be accepted gets lower and lower than their body boundaries being violated. And I don't mean just physically, but even verbally. And, and then they walk away. And there's so many other people out there. There's so many other kids out there that have been treated the exact same way that they can become friends with. And this is what God is doing. I don't need to destroy you. I don't need to get revenge. I don't need to... You can have your world that you built. We don't need to bring down the poor and bring down the powerful. God will do that in his day. 
You just need to remove yourself from that system. Don't try to bring down CNN or Fox or whatever you hate and think it's corrupt and messed up. Just remove yourself from it and let them implode on themselves and find a new group of people to be with, a new people to hang out with, a people who've also been outcasted and dejected. And this is the point that God is making, is walk away, move on, and don't think about them anymore. Find the other people. Chapter 14, verse 25. Now large crowds were accompanying Jesus and turning to them. He said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. For which of you wanting to build a tower doesn't sound? Now, what Christ is not saying, you must hate your parents and your family. Okay, we've already, he's, he's mentioned this kind of stuff before already. That this is what's called covenant language. Covenant language. It's like when you go back to Ezekiel and Ezekiel says, Jacob, I loved Esau, I hate it. And people are like, what? How can the loving of God of the universe say that? It's covenant language. And it, it doesn't make sense to us that he would use the word hate as I have not made a covenant with them and love, I have made a covenant with them. We're like, those are emotion words. Why are you using emotion words in covenantal legal document terminology? Because we're not a part of that culture and we don't get it. There's so many words that we probably use that other people from other cultures are like, why are you using those words for that context and that nature? That doesn't make sense. The one that always gets me is like, I, I understand a lot of slang, but the one that I never got that the high school kids used to say, I mean, is you got trolled, okay? So if somebody made fun of you or owned you, like you said something and they like then pointed out the stupidity of it and everybody's like, oh my gosh, like denied or whatever. They said, you got trolled. How is that related to a troll coming out of the woods and mauling your face off? Like, like uh, I mean, denied kind of makes sense, but that one just never, like, where did that come from? We have our own words that you're like, what does that have to do with things? And so this is covenant language. And the idea is that your family loyalty should be secondary to your loyalty to God. It's not that you don't care about your family anymore. It's not that you don't serve them or take care of them or be there for them. In fact, that's what you're supposed to do because that's what it means to be the kingdom of God. It just means that if your family is saying, we're going to reject you if you go towards this God, or we don't agree with what you're saying, stop saying things like this about God, or we're not going to talk about this, or you have no part of us, then are you going to choose your family that only provides physical, emotional, social status for this life, or are you going to choose Yahweh who provides spiritual and eternal life for you? And the idea is, like Augustine, disorder loves. Which one are you going to rank the highest? Are you willing to lose the world but gain the kingdom of God? And that's what Christ is basically saying. Who are you going to make your covenant with? Who are you going to pledge your allegiance to? You can only have one allegiance. For which of you, wanting to build a tower, doesn't sit down and first compute the costs? to see if he has enough money to complete it. Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish the tower, all who see it will begin to make fun of him. They will say, 
this man began to build and was not able to finish? Or what king going out to confront another king in battle will not sit down and first determine whether he is able with 10,000 to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he cannot succeed, he will send a representative while the other is still a long way off and ask for terms of peace. In the same way, therefore, not one of you can be my disciple if he does not renounce all his own possessions or count the costs, as another gospel says. Now, this is very important to understand because no one builds a tower without determining first whether they can. Nobody goes into war without first determining whether they're possible of doing it. We live life this way. Wouldn't you think that the most eternal decision of your entire life would be also weighed the same way? Jesus is saying, I don't want you to jump on the bandwagon and follow me. I don't want you to feel all warm and fuzzy inside and that you're like, oh, the cockles of my heart are feeling warmed up and nice. I want to be a part of this. And then you join me. And then you realize, oh, crap, this is what's involved. This is what you actually expected from me. This is the make every effort to enter in that you have. I don't know if I want to be a part of this. I don't want to be a part of this. This is a completely radical approach to evangelism than what we have grown up in America throughout our histories. In America, we have this idea where we have this, we create this mountaintop experience. Now, I'm not anti the emotional experiences. They're great. And I'm not anti, emotions are important. Emotions are very, very important. The problem is that we don't handle emotions well, and we don't couple it and marry it with logic and reason and, 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 and um, evaluation very well. We either do one really good in one area or one over well in the other area. We don't balance them. We're either really emotional or way too illogical. And so we create these mountaintop youth pastor experiences. Not knock on the youth pastors. Lots of people have been guilty of this. It's just the stereotype. Okay, here's the thing. Okay, I'm going lots of places. Do you know what picture characterizes the American Christian life better and more often than any other picture that's ever been used in America? People standing on mountaintops with a beautiful sunset and going like this, arms out, looking up, as if this is the Christian life. Do you feel this every single day in the Christian life? But every time they're like, come to our, our momentum experience, come to our evangelism thing, come to our, this, come to our church service, and they show a picture of people on a mountain with their arms out. This is how I feel every day as a Christian. That's a lie. Now, are there moments like that? Yes. When those moments come, do they logically make sense of what's happening around you? No, because they pass all understanding, right? Surpass it. But a lot of the Christian life is like, God, I have no idea what you want me to do right now. I'm so confused. I prayed for you, but I, I still can't get my life under control. Like, what does the future look like now for us? God, please, I hope I have the faith to be faithful in the midst of all the crap happening around us, right? I have been praying and praying for this thorn to be removed from my flesh for years, and I'm still struggling with it. Now, don't get me wrong. The Christian life is absolutely phenomenal and filled with great blessings and peace and joy, but there's a lot of, well, it's impossible without the Holy Spirit. 
And we've, we've sold this mountaintop experience, and, and we, we rev these kids or adults up with these emotionally, and they're like, yes, yes, yes. And then they go home after these commitments, and life slams back into them. They thought everything in life would change, that the, the, the desires for the addictions would just be gone after the mountaintop experience, that the friends all of a sudden, that then getting rejected wouldn't really matter to them anymore. And yes, eventually that will happen, but it's a process. It's a process of surrendering and and sanctification and realigning your identity, realigning your identity out of the things of the world and back into Christ. That's a long process. If your identity is in success or money or getting good grades or getting promotions and slaps on the back at work or, or, or acceptance or whatever it is, and what crisis, and then, they, then some of them check the system. I, I mentioned this before. Ray Comfort is this Aust- Australian, right? He's an evangelist. I really like him. He's got this really interesting parable that he tells. And he says, for a long time, the Christian evangelism has been, here, here's a parachute. Put on, Christianity is a parachute. The gospel is a parachute. Put it on. Get on this plane and wear this parachute. This parachute is going to make your life more comfortable. It's going to make it better. And it's going to make you happy. And then they get on the airplane with this giant bulky parachute. And they sit down in the airplane seat. And they're uncomfortable because they're like leaning forward drastically and being pushed against the seat in front of them. And then the kid's going like this, like in kindergarten cop. Okay, and pushing against them is miserable. And because they're uncomfortable, then it makes the coffee get spilled on their lap and all this kind of stuff. And then everybody begins to make fun of them. The ridiculous person with the parachute can't sit comfortably. And eventually, what do people do? They grab the parachute and chuck it and say, this isn't worth it. This is supposed to make my life comfortable and awesome and victorious. Instead, if you told them, at the end of this flight, it's going to crash and burn in a horrible inferno. And, and there is no life after this. Everyone's going to die. And the only thing that's going to get you out of this is this parachute. And they put it on. And then when they're uncomfortable, it just reminds them of what's coming. When the coffee gets spilled on them, it reminds them of the heat that is coming. When people make fun of them, they don't really care because they know that this is life. And then they cling to it all the more. If we said life is difficult, and it will continue to be difficult even when you accept Christ. And you know what? It might even be more difficult because they'll hate you like they hated Jesus. And you're going to not have fun in the way that the world does. You might miss out on job promotions. You might miss out on getting invited to certain parties. You might get made fun of all. There's the goody two-shoe who won't drink with us at happy hour or whatever. But you know what? Christ is going to be with you. And he's going to walk with you. And he's going to accept you. He's going to love you. He's going to give you a peace and a hope and a joy that passes all understanding. And eventually he's going to bring you into a community of other people who know what it's like to be like that. And they've got Christ too. And you will circle around each other and you will help each other. And you will comfort each other. And the Holy Spirit will comfort you. And at the end of this all, there's a kingdom of God awaiting you. Life is going to be difficult no matter what religion you pick. 
But do you want the one that has a very real God who comes down and walks among us and indwells us and is willing to get us through and, and empower us and give us victory like he too was victorious in this life? Or do you really want to do it completely on your own? Or in the case of kings, do you want to be a king like all the other nations where you're completely left to your own devices to rule? Or do you want to be a Deuteronomic king where the spirit of God is on you and you're surrendering to him and then leading? And this is what Christ is saying. Count the cost. Don't go for the emotional experience and think that that's what's going to be for the rest of your life. Really think about it. This is what Christianity expects from me. Prayer, reading the Bible, and, and, and sanctification, and accountability groups, and studying, and resisting temptation. And no, I'm not doing that in my own works. And I'm not doing that through my own efforts. I have the Holy Spirit that will be given to me. I, that's very clear in the Gospels. But I also know that I have the, so they have the sinful nature, and I'm not going to be very likely to surrender to the Holy Spirit every single moment of my life. And I'm going to have to learn that lesson over and over and over again. Is this worth it? And I may lose friends. I may lose family. This is what Christ offers. This is what I'm going to lose. This is what it's going to be entailed. This is what life is like without Christ. Consider. Because if you make your choice based on that, you're far more likely, likely to persevere. A lot of perseverance, I think, has failed in America because we have given the gospel message in the wrong container. Not that we've ever missed... The gospel, nobody is, I'm not saying that anybody's like, they got the spiritual laws wrong or the gospel message wrong. They just packaged it and too pretty of a mylar happy birthday balloon <laughs> and not enough of a life-giving spring in the middle of a desert. And the spring will always be there, but so will the desert. So will the desert. Spurgeon was really good at this. Spurgeon was saying he would give these, these things, these um, things, these gospel presentations, sorry, <laughs> And, and then he would say, now if you're feeling right now really emotional and you want to come to Christ, and he says, don't. Go home. Think. Pray. And in the morning, if you still want that, then come to Christ. And I know these people over here are telling you, oh, but you could die any moment. He says, if you're seriously counting the cost and seeing and pursuing God, he will take care of you until the morning when you make your decision. Now, he did warn, don't wait years and years and years. But he also made it very clear, don't just jump on the bandwagon and the motion right now. Give yourself a time to come down at the high, right? Don't ever make decisions when you're emotional, whether depressed and angry or even happy. <laughs> Some people are really excited and they make decisions and they're like, oh, wait a minute. Spurgeon was like that. And then the Great Awakening came. The second Great Awakening. And that's where they inspired, they appealed to emotionalism. Now remember, emotions are not bad. But they're good when they're held and dealt with in the right way. And this is what Christ is saying. This is the basis for Ray Comfort and Charles Spurgeon's theology. And the way that they did evangelism. Now, I'm not saying that there's not a place for emotions. God uses emotions. 
And they're very powerful. And they should be a part of conversions. They should be a part of the gospel message. And just saying, and Christ is just saying, do not go basically on the emotions. All logic, all emotions, neither one are good. Neither one are healthy. Verse 34. Salt is good, but if salt loses flavor, how can its flavor be restored? It is of no value for the soil of, or is no value for the soil or for the manure pile. If it is to be thrown out, the one who has ears to hear had better listen. We already know this. Salt brings out the flavor in things. Salt preserves things. But if it loses saltiness, it is of no use. And what Christ is saying, Israel is beginning to lose its saltiness. It's beginning to lose its... Jesus' disciples were to live as though they were condemned to death by crucifixion, oblivious to the desires of the world for securing their own social status and future through obligations or possessions. Instead, finding their identity in Jesus and what he did for them and through his suffering and self-sacrifice. I've really truly become convinced over the years, and I may be wrong, but from the way I see it, I've become very convinced that the vast majority of the Christian life and the Christian growth is reorienting your identity. I think it has less to do with behaving in a correct way. It has less to do with um, thinking a certain way, like theologically. And and now listen, I'm not saying none of that is important. But I really do begin to think that I really think it's how you view yourself and your identity in Christ. Do you find your identity in your success at work? Do you find your identity in being accepted by people? Do you find your identity in your artistic skill, your musical skill, your athletic skill, your intellectual skill, your ability to do this job well? All, right, we, we've been around long enough to know there are so many things that people find their identity in. And I really believe that when we can really shift our identity to being found in Christ, a lot of the behaviorism begins to fall into place. The true heart and love for God begins to fall in place. The ability to walk away from the world begins to happen. The, the, the reading the Bible, the desire, all that. And I really think that the only way that you can shift your identity is rooting yourself in the word of God in prayer and with other people who want Christ. What goes in the eyes of a man or a woman is what will affect the heart. And, and what you can fill yourself with is what you will become. And to some extent, there is this truth to you are what you eat on a metaphorical level. And we have to really decide, if I really want to feel the power of this, then I have to be in Christ. And the more that I'm in Christ, the more my identity will shift from the things of the world to Christ. And the more I will begin to act like Christ. John makes this point in the first John that you are what you're, you're, you are, the prodigy are what their fathers are. A duck will have ducks, and those ducks will act and talk like a duck. And if you really truly see that you're a son or a daughter of Christ, then you're the, his prodigy will be his spitting image. And a lot of this is really truly seeing that Christ is better than all alternatives. Now, I'm not saying that's easy. I'm just saying that maybe it helps narrow the focus down a little bit more. 
of where you put your time and energy. Because in fact, I really think that that's the hardest part. That's the core of your being. Everything else is symptoms. Everything else is symptoms.